Welcome to the One Hope Church Podcast, where we believe Jesus is our one hope for a better life and a better world. We hope this message encourages you. It's inevitable. All of us go through different seasons in life. We go through different seasons. We all start out as babies, right? And then, and then we move into the toddler phase of life. And then there's this in-between phase where we're, we're not quite teenagers, but we're not little toddlers anymore. And, and then we eventually get to be teenagers and become young adults. And then we get into the middle age kind of life. And then we get to the older adults, or as we call it around here, adults plus, right? We all have seasons of change. And depending how old you are, you will have been through these seasons, these changes. And in every one of these seasons, there's transition that happens as life goes on. And I've been through those myself. There's one major transition in my life that has been bigger than an, another, has, has caused me to grow maybe more than another, ca- caused me to figure out life in a brand new way more than another, and that was the transition going from Bachelor Scott to Married Scott, all right? Like, I think back to those times, and I, I think it's funny to think about the differences in my life from when I was Bachelor Scott to when I was Married Scott, because Bachelor Scott, life was simple. Bachelor Scott days, I mean, when it comes to how to spend money or, or schedules, my time, um, how to clean the house or dishes, things, you know, like Bachelor Scott life was pretty simple. But then I got married. And before I get myself in trouble, I, marriage is great. You know, marriage is great. You tell my wife, tell Amber, Scott said marriage is great, okay? Before, before I get in trouble, marriage is great, but, but life changes when you get married. The things that were on the table in bachelor life are no longer on the table when you're married. It's, it's things like clothes maybe laying around the house a little bit. It's not on the table anymore. It's kind of, when, 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 when I want to get to a few things a little bit later, there's someone else in the house maybe wants me to get them to a little sooner. You know what I'm saying? Bachelor life and married life is significantly different. One of the things that Amber still makes fun of me about is that I kind of had a rhythm to my life in college when it came to just something like bed sheets. At the beginning of the semester, I bought a set of bed sheets. At the end of the semester, I just threw out those bed sheets and bought new ones. It seems reasonable, doesn't it? I get married. That's not on the table anymore, you know? But there are a couple things that I'm still growing into. A couple of things that are still causing to make me think and have to be aware of. One of them is that when Bachelor Scott lived, one pillow was sufficient. And I'm getting married, and what's my thought? We'll have two pillows now. But then I get married, and all of a sudden there's 20 pillows. Come on. 20 pillows that I take from the bed and put on the ground at night just to wake up the next morning and put on the bed. I don't totally 
get it. But you know what? The pillars are still there and they're not going anywhere soon. You know what I'm talking about? The other one that I'm growing into is learning how life operates when guests are coming over to the house. I learned that there's kind of a science to this, and I don't think the Moore household is different than most other households because when Bachelor Scott was having some guests to the house, there would be an invitation, come on over, I'll be there. I don't know if there's gonna be food. Is the place gonna look nice? Like, I'm not a slob, but like, I'm not gonna get ready for you. Like, come on over. Preparation for the guests was not too extensive. But then I get married. Then I get married and I realize there's a preparation to all of this. And I learned that Bachelor Scott, this is early on, Bachelor Scott is no longer invited to the house when there are guests about to come over. Bachelor Scott is no longer invited to the house when guests are coming over because there's floors to be swept. There are lint brushes for the couches. There are pillows to put right, facing right, right direction, with the right amount of fluff, you know? Bachelor Scott is not invited when there are candles that need to be lit to make the place smell nice. These are all things that Bachelor Scott didn't care about. But now, now, there's a preparation period because the guests are coming. Now, I think there's a reason to all of this, and you're wondering, Scott, why are you um, telling me this, is it's two weeks until the most important day of the year for all Protestant churches. It is two weeks away till Easter where we celebrate what Jesus has done and changed everything about life. There are two weeks. There are two weeks to, to put Jesus at front and center of everything. Now, don't get me wrong. Every week, it's what we do. We just sang. We just put Jesus front and center. We do it. I hope every day we put Jesus front and center of our lives. But, but I don't think there'd be too many people who would argue that Easter's a special day. I kind of think about it that, that Easter is a time that we understand that he is the guest of honor. And if that is the case, I've been asking myself a question. Scott, from the things that you learned from Bachelor Scott to Married Scott and the preparation for the guests, is there anything that needs to be done in preparation for this day where Jesus comes and I believe wants to do powerful things in our lives? A day where he's the guest of honor, and I do think special things happen where God does a work in our lives as we celebrate what he has done. Is there anything I need to do? I assume you've heard the word Lent before, right? Lent is 40 days before Easter, and Lent is known as a time 
of preparation. And maybe you've seen people talk about it, heard people talk about it, the, the um, you know, things, little things they give up. But maybe I give up uh, social media, I give up uh, chocolate, I give up TV. Some people do, do things all the time. Because Lent is a season of preparation for what is going to come on Easter. Well, there's only two weeks away, not 40 days. There's two weeks, a day, uh, two weeks away until that big day, and the question I want to ask you today and the question I want to ask you next week is, is there anything God is asking from you as we prepare for Easter? Is there anything that needs to be done in our life in preparation for the guest to come and speak to us? And so our first conversation we're going to have about preparation is going to be looking at a letter that was written to the church in Rome, okay? We're going to look at the letter that Paul wrote, and I'm going to do something that I don't often do, is we're going to look at one single verse in chapter 12. One single verse that I think there are nuggets of truth in this that will help us prepare. And so we're going to go Romans chapter, one, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Okay? So you can grab your Bibles, your phones, whatever you've got. Um, we're gonna, uh, also on the screen here as I continue, I'm going to read chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, these are Paul's words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. One verse. One verse. But let's kind of jump into this, like the deep end of this. Oh, deep into this letter. Let me give you some context. Let me give you some history on this letter that Paul wrote. On the day of Pentecost, a disciple named Peter spoke this well-known message in Jerusalem to thousands of people. It tells us that in this great event, that thousands of people give their life to Jesus or acknowledge, believe that he is the Messiah. After this festival that was going on and after this message that Peter gave, people began to leave Jerusalem. People began to leave this celebration and they went back to where they came from. But they didn't go back the same as when they came. They learned an important truth. They had bought into this message of Jesus. And so what happened is, is churches started forming all over the Eastern world. One of those churches was in Rome. Now, Paul had gone on two missionary journeys up to this point. But he had not made his way to Rome. Actually, he says earlier in the letter, he tells them, he says, I want to come see you. I want to come encourage you. I want to come meet you. I want to come be with you. I want to stop on the way to Spain. But he had not made it there yet. And so since he had not made it there, and since he was an early apostle, he decided he wanted to write them a letter to instruct them, to, to teach them. 
So what he did is he wrote this letter, and then he sent a woman named Phoebe to preach it to them. He sent this woman to uh, named Phoebe to teach them and answer questions that may have. And, and it seems reasonable, when, and, 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 and we figure the reason he sent her is because she probably was there when the letter was written. Paul had been discipling her to lead in this early church movement. And so the year that Paul writes this is about 55 to 57 A.D. Now, there's some interesting kind of, once again, little nuggets to this, to this um, letter that he wrote. The first 11 chapters are what we would call Christology or Christology. The first 11 chapters are Paul giving his argument, Paul giving his information of who Jesus is and what he did. He needs people to see the, the, the reality or needs to see um, the truth of who Jesus is. But after the 11th chapter, we get into chapter 12 and there's a transition that happens. You may not have ever seen this before. In chapter 12, there's a transition that happens, and what we would call this, if we're doing a Bible study, is he transitions into Christian ethics, or the expectation of how a follower of Jesus should conduct their lives. So I want you to picture this. Paul, either dictating or writing himself, he writes this letter to inform the people about Jesus, but then he says, hey, from this information, now I want you to live your life this way. And, and the transition, is, it's kind of neat to me. You see this because what is the first word in chapter 12? Did you notice it? It's simply, therefore. Now, why do I tell you these things? One is, I'd like to give bigger context because as we're reading the Bible, I want us to grow and learn how to read the Bible. And sometimes there are details within the Bible that become very interesting and, and, and almost the words can pop off the page if you begin to realize it's not just a singular verse that Paul had a message for this, for this Roman church. And so first 11 chapters, like here's the, here's the information and now here's what I want you to do with it. So he says, therefore, it's like me saying to you, okay, I've taught you this, but that's not enough. I've taught you this, but now we're going to do with this information. Because this is always important to remember. Information about Jesus is never enough. It's the transformation that happens after we get the information of Jesus. It's what's really important in life. We can never stop at information. We can't put a period after, okay, I know this. It's what are we going to do with it? So, as I said today, we're going to look at this one verse. And I want us to put ourselves in the seat of a, a person in Rome who has believed that Jesus is the Messiah. But what do we do with that now? And so I think there are four little things in one verse I just want to bring up off the page. And maybe we can put ourselves in that seat and learn something that can transform our life today. So let's go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 again. He says, therefore, we got that word, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. Okay, stop right there. I urge you, brothers and sisters. 
Have you ever wanted something so badly? Have you ever wanted something so badly that you find yourself almost begging someone to listen to what you have to say? You're a parent. If you're a parent, have you ever like known something and you're saying to your kid, like, I know this to be truth and I want you to have it so badly. I want you to get why this is important. You find yourself almost begging or pleading, please take what I'm saying. Have you ever sat in that seat as a parent? Maybe you're a teacher. Any teachers in here? You have students and you're like, come on, I want you to get this. I need you to get this. Do you, this is so valuable. I just want you to see why this is remarkable. A coach. A coach just wants their athlete to see what I'm telling you is going to lead to success. What I'm telling you is going to lead to a different kind of, of, of a way that you're going to play this sport. I just want you to see what I know, what I've learned. A friend got a friend who's making some life decisions and you look at that friend and go don't do it i'm begging you listen to me i'm begging you there's a different way to live you're a mentor in someone's life and you've been somewhere before maybe you work in the medical field and you're like i'm seeing what's wrong will you listen to me do it this way there's ever been a circumstance in your life where you just find yourself knowing something and you want someone else to know it Paul, in his experience, has found the truth about Jesus. And in this moment, it's like he's saying, I'm begging you to listen to the truths that I found out for myself. I want you to know it. I want you to live differently because of it. What we get in this moment is Paul's passion for Jesus spills onto the paper, and we get to read it because Paul never goes halfway when it it comes to Jesus. It's the reason he travels from town to town. It's the reason he gets him put in this prison and that prison. It's the reason he gets beating after beating and he keeps coming back. It's because this message of Jesus has changed his life. And I want you to feel his passion today. I want you to feel the urgency today. I want you just to feel the emotion on on these pages that I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, brothers and sisters. He wants nothing more to matter than Jesus. But he continues. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... In view of God's mercy. What is Paul talking about in view of God's mercy? I'm pleading with you. I'm begging with you. In view of God's mercy. Let's rewind a second again. I said about the first 11 chapters. What did I say? First 11 chapters are when Paul gave what we call Christology. is the, the message of Jesus. The truth about Jesus. Who he is. What he has done. In those first 11 chapters, he has already declared so many mercies of God. He's declared things like, there's justification or there is forgiveness from guilt and the penalty of sin. He's already declared this to them in the first 11 chapters. 
He's declared that there is an adoption and identity that is found in Jesus. That your life is changed. That you, you, you Romans, these people who, who need to understand who Jesus is, there is an adoption and an identity that is found in the person of Jesus. This is God's mercy to them. He's declared to them that our lives... Are lived, not, are lived under grace, no longer the law. This was a big deal to them. Everything they had been taught had been about the law. Now he's saying you're living under grace. This was a mercy of God giving to them. He's declared to them that we are given the Holy Spirit to live in victory. This has been preached in the first 11 chapters. He's told them to this. He's told them that we can be confident in the return of Jesus someday. This was a big deal that God was coming back for them. This was declaring the mercies of God. He's told them we can be confident that nothing separates us from the love of God. He's told them this. It's a mercy of God. He has told them that we can live in the assurance of God's faithfulness. The first 11 chapters, he has told the people about this. And there's more than that that can be found, but those are the ones that kind of popped off the page for me. And so can you get what he's saying? I urge you, brothers and sisters... Because of God's mercies that I've just told you about, picture it, Phoebe reading this letter. She's, she's, she's preaching to them Paul's words. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what God has done. And this is what he says he wants us to do. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God I'm pleading with you because of what Jesus has done I want you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices now what is Paul talking about living sacrifices Paul can talk about living sacrifices in whatever environment he wants to speak in Rome because it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile it doesn't matter if you're religious or a pagan sacrifices would have been part of your life but all sacrifices they were not equal let's look at pagan sacrifices for a second if you're a pagan in that in that world um, you would offer sacrifices to appease an angry God. If you were a pagan, you would understand that your God is unpredictable and you wanted your God to like you and favor you. And so that is why many times you'd see them offering food offerings because if the gods were hungry, then they're going to be mad. So we've got to offer up these sacrifices to our gods because we can't have our gods be angry when we need rain. We can't have our gods be angry when we need sun. We can't have our gods be angry when we need our livestock to grow. We can't have gods that are angry because we need our harvest. We need our gods to supply what we need. So their offerings were to appease their god. Now, in the Jewish system, offerings were done for a couple different reasons. One is to give God thanks. But two was for the atonement of sin. There needed to be justice done for a, a, a sinful act by somebody. Something needed to be paid for that sin. 
And so when you look at these things, um, the pagans did it for God management, we'll say. The Jewish people, you could say, often did it for sin management. They needed something to cover their sin. And so knowing how sacrifices were done for mo by most people, Paul's now writing them. He's reading this. So he's getting this letter read to them. He's saying, listen, things have changed. In the person of Jesus, things have changed. You don't need to sacrifice in the same way for the same reasons. That you don't have to do the sacrifices like the pagans do or the Jewish people do. Things have changed. He's trying to help them see that God, uh, that you give a sacrifice to God not because you want him to do something, but because of what he already has done. Or maybe it could be said this way. There is a difference in giving sacrifice to gain God's mercy and giving a sacrifice because of God's mercy. This is what's changing. Can I tell you, this is, um, in, in, in this circle right here, like I speak to most of you most weeks, this seems like, well, yeah, I know this. Put yourself in the seat of the Romans. Like, what? You want a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice? What good is a living sacrifice? We have dead sacrifices because we got to get things done. We got to manage our gods or we have to get atonement for sin. We need dead sacrifices. And Paul's like, no. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And I can just imagine those people sitting in the room listening to this being read. And I wonder if a light bulb moment went off. You ever read a book before and something happens, you go, wait, 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 wait a minute. Didn't they say something earlier about this? And it kind of completes the thought. I'm wondering if they're sitting in the room listening to this and all of a sudden they go, wait, 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 Phoebe, wait. Didn't Paul already say something about this? I believe it's in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. I'm not in the room. I get it. But I'm wondering if those people sitting there are going, wait, I know what he means now. Offering myself is the greatest sacrifice that I can give. Offering all of me, it's almost that, God, you can take my life, every single part of it. It's yours. And I'm reading this, and I'm 
even saying to myself, forget them back then. I'm looking at myself and going, Scott, what does that actually look like? It was a new concept for them. It's actually not a new concept for me. If I've been brought up in the church, but I still ask, what does that look like? And I start to think. Paul, when you're talking about giving yourself, your bodies as a living sacrifice, when you're talking about giving maybe all of you, maybe this is what you mean, and this is what I said to myself this week. Does Paul mean, God, I give you my hands? God, I give you my hands to do whatever you've called me to do. Is that part of giving your bodies as a living sacrifice? That I'm not dead physically, but I'm alive in Christ, which means it's not my will, it's his will. I give myself completely, and so part of my body is I look at my hands and I say, God, you can have my hands to do whatever you have called me to do. Maybe it's simply as God, I give you my feet. God, I give you my feet to go wherever you've called me to go. Does this make living sacrifices a clearer picture? Does it make it manageable? Does it make it understandable? Paul, is this what you're asking? I give all of me, so I give my hands, I give my feet, I give you my eyes. I give you my eyes so I'll look and see the things that you want me to see. Is there a part of us that we have to give this over because when we look at and see the things we want to see, it's going to be under our broken nature, not under our aliveness in Christ. I give you my eyes. Maybe we have to be very clear, and it's I give you my ears. I give you my ears because I need to hear your voice over everything else that's in life. You know that your life is noisy. You know that your life has you pulled in lots of directions that people are trying to say and pull you towards them. And maybe part of being offering my life, my body as a living sacrifice, I give you my ears because I want to hear what you have to say more than anything else in life. I give you my mouth. give you my mouth because I want to speak the words that you want me to speak because you know the words that you'll speak when you've given your mouth to God and when you've given your mouth to yourself you know there's a difference you know there is a difference when we offer up our bodies including our mouth that we operate differently God I give you my mind because I want to think about the things that are important to you. Our mind can go a lot of places. Our mind can go a lot of places. They can go to insecure places. They can go to anger places. They can go to impure places. They can go to a lot of places. The distractions are endless. But what if giving our minds as a sacrifice to God, it's yours, you get it, 
What if we begin to think about the things that he wants us to think about? God, I'm giving my body as a living sacrifice. You know why? Because of how he ends chapter 12. Because this is your true and proper worship. Why do you do this? Because this is your true and proper worship. This is what a life of worship looks like. Let's go back to the beginning. The celebration of what Jesus did is coming. It is two weeks away. I believe Easter is a special time where we can evaluate our lives. We can, we, can, we can stop for a moment, and maybe God wants to speak to us in unique ways. It's a special season. But maybe there are some things in our life that we need to prepare for the guests to come. Maybe there are things we need to clean up. I'm not talking salvation so that God will come. I'm talking about maybe there's some things in our lives that we need to offer up and say, I've gotten a little out of whack in life, and the guest is coming, and I need to sweep up. I need to clean up. Because I want to not only hear God, but I want to be a place where I can respond to God the way he has called me to respond. I think in this season, it's a time we can look at and say, I want to prepare, and maybe the first thing we need to do is there's some outside things, my body, that I want to offer up as a living sacrifice because I don't want to miss out on anything that God wants to do in my life. So I'm putting this to you. You've got two weeks. We're going to celebrate Jesus every single Sunday here, but you've got two weeks before Easter. Is there something in your life, if you are honest, I've gotten a little loose on and God, I need to give you my eyes. I need to give you my ears. I need to give you my mind. I need to give you my hands. I need to give you my feet. I need to give you my body as a sacrifice because all of me is all for you. Is there something that God maybe wants to speak to you and say, I want to do a little something because there's more for you? Let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, in this moment, I'm asking you to speak very specifically to your church. We do a lot of things, but are they for you? We go a lot of places, but are they places you want us to go? God, we listen to a lot of things, but are the things we should be listening to? Our mind goes a lot of places, but are we supposed to be going there? Are there other places? God, our mouth says a lot of things, but are the things you want us to speak? God, are our bodies yours or are they ours, God? And I pray that we would understand that offering our total bodies to you as a living sacrifice is the number one thing we can do. Paul pleaded with the church in Rome, and I plead with the church in Tuscaloosa. I plead with the church and whoever is watching, listening, God, that we, we would offer our bodies because of the mercies of God that he's already given to us. Thank you. That you want all of us. 
So God, I'm asking you to speak very specifically to us to something that we are holding on to that we will not give to you in our life. Will you do a work in us? In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from One Hope Church. If you liked this message and would like to hear more, check out our website at OurOneHope.com for message archives, service times, and more information on how you can get connected. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you soon.